Good morning and welcome to Rising, a truly extraordinary show today. And it even says that in the teleprompter, so it must be true. Truly extraordinary. And we all know that we will read literally whatever is in the That's right. teleprompter. Just That's tell me what to say and I say it. That's how it goes. It's Ron Burgundy. Alimia Lauren and Rachel Bovard will join us to discuss the confirmation hearings of Judge Kentanji Brown-Jackson. But right now, we want to go over new reports from Ukrainian intelligence, which reveal that Russian elites are plotting to overthrow Russian President Vladimir Putin in order to restore economic security in the country. The Kyiv Independent said in a tweet that Alexander Bordnikov, head of FSB security agency, is allegedly being considered as Putin's successor. Take that with a huge grain of salt. Massive grain. <laughs> According to the first, the first casualty of war is truth. And yeah, yeah. so we don't know if that's propaganda or if that's actually yeah. reflects real I'm sure real people would like it to be true, but we don't. Right. We don't, we know. don't know. But that's what they're saying. Anyway, so uh, the, chief, the chief director of intelligence of Ukraine said, quote, it is known that Bortnikov and some other influential representatives of the Russian elite are considering various options to remove Putin from power. In particular, poisoning, sudden disease, or any other, quote, coincidence is not excluded, unquote. According to the Daily Beast, Putin is so paranoid of being poisoned, he has people tasting his food before he eats it and replaces his entire personal staff of a thousand workers. Now, like I said, take that with a grain of salt. Actually, have somebody else taste those grains of salt <laughs> <laughs> before you take them. Here with us to discuss is investigative reporter at The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein. Ken, what do you make of these reports? Well, like you said, take it with a grain of salt. When I talk to folks in the military intelligence community, they themselves take their own intelligence with a grain of salt in the sense that um, there needs to be a scientific process if you're going to take intelligence seriously. Uh, they say that uh, the, pro the process by which they come up with national intelligence estimates, it's kind of like science. You have every agency debate it and question things. And unfortunately, in these kind of reports, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't always happen. So, so one never knows. The, the intelligence, our U.S. intelligence at least, has... I think there's a perception, probably correct, that well, you tell me if it's correct, that our intelligence surrounding, you know, what Russia's doing in Ukraine has been better or more accurate than uh, than what we were accustomed to with some of the stuff going on in the Middle East. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, um, what they said uh, came to pass that uh, Putin was going to invade, and they were warning about this as early, I believe, as January. And I know that. Um, there were uh, military contingencies called preparing the battle space, um, you know, uh, backing the Ukrainians going back as, as as late as November at the very least. So they did seem to be on top of the ball. And that's important to the Biden administration because I think they're trying to, um, uh, you know, portray a different uh, image after after what happened in Afghanistan. And is that is that simply because they were built to understand the Soviet Union? I mean, although on the other hand, they completely missed the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they, they blew that, but they were set up, you know, the U.S. intelligence industry is set up, you know, to combat Russia. So is, is that why they got better at this? How did they figure this out, but they couldn't see the Berlin Wall coming down? Yeah, so what's unique about this conflict um, in, in terms of conflicts that have taken place in the last 30 years or so is that this is with a nation state. And as you say, we've had a lot of experience, a lot of practice monitoring nation states. And just in general, it's easier to know um, where to look to collect intelligence because there's a bureaucracy, there's a formal system. On the other hand, if you look at the post 9-11 conflicts, you have uh, non-state actors like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Those are a lot harder to keep tabs on because they don't follow the same organizational structure that uh, typical nation states do. 
Believers of the New World Order conspiracy theory received new fuel for fodder after President Biden spoke about the United States' response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine during an address at Business Roundtable's CEO quarterly meeting. Let's listen. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy. Not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. As one of as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946, and uh, since then we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway. Is Biden just so clueless, I guess, that he doesn't realize what that phrasing implies to some people? Or why, why, would, he, why would he put it that way, I guess? I'm guessing he's not an Alex Jones regular, and maybe he right. doesn't know the ter- terminology <laughs> about what that, what that means. But what, what this is, is it's returning us um, to a pre-1990s kind of state of affairs where where there are you know there is superpower competition in a way that I don't think we had seen since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean this this kind of um, diction harkens back to the language that they used at that time. So um, not only are we seeing the rise of China, um, but uh, as Russia reasserts itself, we're really uh, it, again it feels like we're sort of setting the clock back <laughs> in, in in terms of the, the the way that we conceptualize uh, global competition and conflict, and and that's what I thought that that. Uh, that terminology reminds me of. And, and so, can we we discussed reports earlier that the heads of Saudi Arabia and the UAE had kind of denied calls from Biden, reporting from the Wall Street Journal, as the, as the U.S. was working to build international support around Ukraine and also pushing for uh, more oil production. So, uh, so, but still, the U.S. continues to fill orders for the Persian Gulf. The uh, Wall Street Journal reports that Biden has transferred a significant number of Patriot anti-missile interceptors uh, to Saudi Arabia within the last month. So what do you, what do you make of the, these, these various reports, and what's the latest on the, the relationship between the U.S. and the UAE and Saudi Arabia? Yeah, what's fascinating about this is that this has not happened in isolation. This is a continuation of a trend. Um, last year, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, had planned a trip to uh, Saudi Arabia, and they ended up canceling at the last 24 hours, which if you talk to folks in the diplomatic community, <laughs> that is a huge hoisting of the uh, middle digit <laughs> in, in, in the diplomatic world to cancel at the last minute like that because it doesn't give them time for you know logistics and to plan different things. You can cancel well ahead of time. And so um, this is a continuation of that, and I think um, talking to folks both uh, in the administration and the intelligence community, an indication of the acrimonious nature of, of this relationship. Um, that is uh, that is anger on the part of Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE at President Biden. If you look at um, his predecessor, they were much closer to President Trump, who took his first foreign visit to Riyadh, um, sold a record number of arms to uh, Saudi Arabia, defended MBS after um, the CIA concluded that he had ordered the assassination of uh, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And now we have a Democrat in office who uh, is called Saudi a pariah, and declines to meet with MBS. So I think it's pretty clear why that tension exists and it's playing out in things like this where they're refusing to meet with uh, high-level U.S. officials. Yeah, and, and is there going to be, do you think it's just going to keep moving in that direction? Are we like past the point when maybe it's a maybe it's a good thing, maybe we don't want to fix this relationship with this brutal, murderous regime, but of course now it's, it's 
it's an issue because of gas prices, and we, you know, we want to be focused on Russia, Ukraine, and, and, and you know, not be not be having this feud. Uh, with, we can't afford to have a feud with every other country on the on the face of the earth. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that we're really limited in how much we can extricate ourselves from this relationship because of that um, uh, fossil fuel economy that exists. The reality, uh, I think it would help a whole lot if they were able to reinstate the JCPOA with Iran. Um, estimates hold that it would increase the global oil supply by something like 10%. Uh, same with Venezuela. And if they were able to ramp up their production in the long term, that would increase as well. But um, none of this uh, quite replaces the unique, uh, not just supply that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates enjoy, but the capacity they have to flood the market immediately that those two other states do not. And I think that, um, you know, a few drinks in and in talks with uh, U.S. officials, they acknowledge that and say there's serious limits to, um, you know, this human rights based, order based um, global system that the U.S. leaders are always gassing on about um, when we have not had the policy um, to allow us to do that and to and to uh, uh, extricate ourselves from relationship with, uh, you, you know, frankly, uh, dictatorial regimes like Saudi and the UAE. And how how seriously is the national security state taking the, taking this relationship with Saudi Arabia? And are are they finally are, are they finally saying you know what our entire Middle East strategy over the last seventy years has run its course and we need to you know we need to we need full energy independence and that means clean energy. Or are they saying no? We just we just need a different you know tactical approach to the region, and and we can kind of we can get our mojo back there. My understanding is that in the National Security Council, there's a lot of tension uh, between uh, you know a lot of the Biden administration appointees and Brett McGurk in particular, who uh, was I'm told was chosen to kind of tell the other side, <laughs> the, the subtext being telling the non-human rights side, telling just the you know raw real politic um you know what are what what are what are the what are the naked interests at play and for whatever reason biden has tended to side with uh his perception of things uh you know much to the chagrin of other people in the administration and you know when you when you when you talk to folks about this i think there's appreciation not publicly because i can't go out and say these things and criticize the president but privately i think there's a lot of um disappointment and and uh uh cognizance of this tension between the sort of soaring rhetoric about our concern for for rights that we're seeing, you know, events with respect to Ukraine, and then the reality of working with these uh, dictatorial regimes that um, you know are disappearing activists, behead people, just executed dozens of people a couple of weeks ago. You know, the ugly reality that um, MBS has not um, embodied the ref kind of reform that uh, a lot of national media tried to claim that he would when he first came into power. The, the Iran nuclear deal is also up in the air as lawmakers in both parties tell the Hill they feel in the dark on the legislation set up by Biden. There are also doubts on the timing of negotiations as relations with China and Russia, two signatories to the original Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, are at an all-time low. And there are concerns a new deal could funnel millions to Russia as it would allow Putin to do nuclear energy business with Iran. So the timing of this is all very interesting. Obviously, we, we, the Biden administration really wanted to get you know back on track. This was an important Obama administration thing that you know, Trump pulled out of, and there's understandable reticence, I think, from the Iranians to well, how, could you just leave this deal again? But talk a little bit about you know how the how the timing of these negotiations, how it matters given you know, what's going on with Russia. Yeah, so we have gas prices at a seven-year high. 
um, that is going to have a domestic effect uh, in the United States as we uh, move into midterm elections. The president was considering gas cards. He's done all sorts of things to indicate, I think, desperation on the part of the administration, tapping the strategic oil reserve, trying to come up with different solutions to this. Um, because, you know, when when you've uh, sanctioned the Russian oil supply, which is understandable, you want to punish Putin, um, that has the effect of continuing to drive things up. And so he's really in a tight spot. If you look at the relationship um, between Russian leadership and UAE and Saudi leadership, they're aware of this. They're taking calls from him. And, and it seems like making overtures uh, to send a message to the U.S. that if you don't treat us better and let us do what we want uh, with regard to human rights, with regard to um, Yemen, you know, we might uh, where I had a story about this recently. Um, MBS's relationship with um, uh, Russian President Putin goes back to at least 2015 when he took a meeting with him because Obama declined to meet with him. So um, there's sort of this zero-sum game, or at least that's the image they're trying to uh, project, um, between you know the U.S. stepping back and then other nations like China and Russia uh, moving in to fill that vacuum and, and have a relationship with them. So I think the most interesting part of this is, uh, go back to the new world order phraseology, we're looking at a new new world order here where, um, I mean, when have you ever heard a president talk about not just uh, reinstating relationship with Iran, but with Venezuela too. I'm in touch with um, the registered lobbyist of the Venezuelans. He's a um, he was a former Republican congressman. Uh, this is this is extremely unusual. And when you talk to him, uh, you know he articulates, I think, a persuasive case for um, why we could normalize relations and, and help alleviate the oil situation. But to hear this from a uh, you know career lifetime Republican. It's almost like you're in Alice in Wonderland. It's so bizarre. And I, I think that it's reflective of the um, recognition that things have to change, that this state of play where you give all of this leverage to uh, the, the Persian Gulf states because of our um, refusal to move away from fossil fuels is not a is not a tenable situation. And also reflective of what a former lawmaker will do for money. <laughs> Ken, Ken, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And I'll see you later today. Great to be with you guys. And we'll tell you what's on our radars up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? So in my radar yesterday, I noted the New York Times quite excellent editorial on America's free speech crisis and how cancel culture is shutting down important conversations, making people feel afraid to express perfectly normal, perfectly legitimate opinions. Both the right and left are to blame for this, of course, but some who lean left... Not my fair-minded co-hosts, of course, but some others. Now, they deny that Team Blue is participating in cancel culture. They even deny that it exists at all. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about one person, Lauren Hoff. Lauren Hoff is the author of Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing, a memoir and collection of essays about her life. Hoff, who is gay, grew up in a Christian doomsday cult and later joined the military while Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. The Lambda Literary Foundation, an organization for LGBTQ writers and readers, recently informed her that her book was a finalist for a Lammy Award, and she was thrilled. The Lambda Prize exists because when someone like me, which is to say a queer person, manages to publish a book with queer themes, those books are often ignored by mainstream prize committees, she wrote on Substack. Prizes get media attention, prizes create name recognition and bring in new readers, prizes sell books, prizes like the Lambda also come with a check. Good news for her, except it was not to be. So Lambda informed Hoff that it had decided to withdraw her nomination due to, quote, the Twitter disputes last week. So sorry to pass this news along, wrote a representative for Lambda in an email to Hoff. The Twitter disputes, according to Hoff, refer to her defense of Sandra Newman, a young adult fiction novelist whose new book, The Men, concerns a dystopia where everyone with a, with a Y chromosome vanishes from the earth. 
Newman had the audacity to describe her book as follows. The book is about women who can't let go of the men they've lost and devote their lives to getting them back. This premise ran afoul of certain transgender Twitter activists since everyone with a Y chromosome is a category that includes not just men but also transgender women and the people left behind would be not just women but also transgender men. Indeed, one such activist described Newman's plotting as, quote, transphobia and transmisogyny. The world of YA fiction includes a small contingent of extremely woke, social justice conscious early reviewers with tremendous power to sick the mob on books and authors who offend them for very slight reasons. It's a disturbing phenomenon that's been well documented by my friends Jesse Single and Kat Rosenfield. As pure example, this is as pure an example of cancel culture, really, as you can find. Now, Hoff defended Newman, and for that, she is no longer up for a Lammy. When YA Twitter came for Sandra, someone who has always been there for me, I responded, she wrote. I told them to read the book before condemning it. I told them characters and plot don't necessarily reflect the politics and views of the author. I told them to read the effing book, or don't. I'd read the book. Sandra Newman sent it to me in an early form, and I gave her a few notes like we do for one another. I'm not transgender, and neither is Sandra. Sandra's non-binary. But we discussed how to make the book, of re- the book recognize the reality of transgender people. Other books that started from this premise, All the Men Disappear, have erased the existence of trans people, and it was important to her not to do that, to be as sensitive as possible. So when I saw people assuming that simple idea was the entirety of the plot, I told them to read the book before assuming the worst. For this, I was labeled a turf." End quote. So a TERF, or trans-exclusionary radical feminist, is generally defined as a feminist who denies that trans women, who began their lives as biological males, are women. Neither Hoff nor Newman describe themselves as holding that view, nor does it appear that either of their books promote that view. But a small number of people who purport to speak for the transgender community end up implicitly making the claim that even acknowledging differences, like the presence of a Y chromosome, between women and trans, me- between women, and trans women, that that's a form of bigotry. Lambda Literary exists to celebrate queer authors for telling stories about queer people for helping to destigmatize the LGBT community. The irony is that in this case, the organization is participating in the social shaming of a queer author who invoked the anger, not of social conservatives, the hateful right wing, but of far left activists. Sadly, this is not the first time that Lambda Literary has succumbed to such pressure. They also denominated a book by Alice Dreger, a historian and bioethicist, because Dreger has clashed with trans activists along similar lines. Lambda Literary did not respond to a request for comment from me, so I'll leave you with this from Hoff. She writes, I'm a queer woman, and I was silenced most of my life. I found my voice, but if my nomination is being withdrawn for using it, what the F is the point of Lambda Literary? So that's a good question. Here's another question. How can anyone possibly say that cancel culture is a made-up problem? I don't know. I don't know, Ryan. (laughs) How can they say it's made up? Like, this is textbook. And again, I I don't want anyone to mistakenly think there are, like, millions of people calling for this award to be rescinded. She didn't get it. Millions of people don't know it exists. There's, like, six people calling for it. Six people on Twitter who are crazy, who who say crazy things, who think that any... Anything that who basically think that even in fiction, if there are fictional characters doing things they don't like, even if within the fictional like world or story, that's supposed to be the bad guys and like like they're being sexist or racist or something. But it's not an endorsement. Right. It's just there are characters. You're supposed to have bad characters for the good characters to overcome. They almost react even to that with suspicion. Yeah. And and so she got a, th- this other author got attacked for this. 
uh, uh, Hoff defended her, and so and it, it's happened like this a yeah. million times. Yeah, and the premise of this show is that you know you've got somebody on the left, you've got somebody on the right, somebody's going to represent the the left view here. There is no way. There is no way that you could possibly <laughs> contort the English language or any basic ethics to come up with anything that is remotely defensive of this idea. And it's yeah, it's true that it's just allowed six people, but it's the silence of everybody else mm-hmm. that empowers those six people. So in some ways, it's not their fault. They're just they're just the lunatics on the fringe right. who are out there shouting. All societies have always had lunatics on the fringe shouting. They don't get to dictate a social culture to everybody else unless everybody else is deathly afraid of them. Exactly. And it's just and just and just sits back. I heard somebody say recently that they thought that call out culture was replacing bullying and that now that, you know, bullying is no longer culturally acceptable, that it needs an expression somehow. Mm-hmm. And the way it expresses itself is through this call out culture. And if that were true, then you would likely find the leading edge of it in the YA world. The, right. the young, the young <laughs> because that, that's yeah. where the bullies really yeah. are. And, it, and, and that's precisely where you find it. The, the other tragedy for this, beyond what's happening to Huff and beyond what's happening to Sandra here, is that this is being yoked around Democrats' necks, whether they like it or not, because of their silence and because Republicans are wisely weaponizing it against Democrats. And it's going to cost them significantly at the polls. So as a result, the kind of the multiracial working class that was pushing under Sanders and that wing of the party towards Medicare for all, towards a higher minimum wage, towards a more decent future for everybody is now going to be undercut by this. Mm-hmm. And, and for what? So that you get to shame a non-binary person <laughs> and then her friend who tells you. Her queer friend who tells you, I worked with this non-binary author to make sure that it was inclusive of trans people. It's truly insane. And for that, we're not going to get Medicare for all and a higher minimum wage. And, and, and oligarchs are going to come in and, and culturally weaponize it so that they can get their taxes lower. And you're, awesome. you're exactly right that an organization, it's on an organization like Lambda Literary to just ignore, ignore those that. six people. Just and say, denounce okay, them. Thank you for your... Whatever, but we're not, but we're proud of this book. Yes, they're the biggest. Announce them. Right. If nobody stands up to them, they just get more more emboldened. Organizations like this just cave over and over and over again, which which has created or allowed the cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, to take over our entire social awareness because the organizations always cave. They never stand up. Yeah, and pretending this isn't happening, ask Lauren Huff. Like, she was up for an award. Now that opportunity is canceled. She doesn't have it anymore because of the culture around it. If you don't want to call that cancel culture, fine. You don't want to call it call-out culture. And they they keep complaining about the name for it because when there is actually a genuine stigma to something underneath it, the name continues to take on negative connotations. Nobody likes this crap. And so whatever you call it will eventually take on negative they managed to take the term social justice and turn that into <laughs> a bad thing a bad thing yep. maybe that's a sign that you're not on the side of social justice yep. maybe you're just a bully well and i also want to thank ryan for helping me put this one together because hoff actually had me blocked on twitter i assume not because we've ever had a negative interaction but some uh, twitter users I, it seems to be a particular category of liberals like uh, to use these block bot mm-hmm. things 
whereas like a, a pre-arranged list of people who, who block them all who have been <laughs> blocked who have been deemed problematic by it. stop using them if you're using them because you end up <laughs> innocent people like me get swept under the rug maybe i haven't been you, totally you innocent at all times for them. Yeah. but right if you if you don't want to hear from me anymore but uh, ryan who was not blocked by her got her to unblock me so i could see her interacting with some of these absolutely insane people. And I promised her Robbie would be on his very best behavior, and here he has been. Here I I am being on (laughs) on good behavior. And I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Ryan? Over the last year, more than 100,000 people in the United States died of drug overdoses, many of them poisoned by fentanyl they didn't realize was part of whatever they were using. An entire generation is getting wiped out, and the death count is only growing. The risks of addiction are different with the advent of fentanyl, not just in a degree, but in kind. The media talks about deaths from fentanyl as overdoses, but in almost every case, the person wasn't trying to take fentanyl. So you can't say you took too much of something you weren't trying to take in the first place. If somebody put fentanyl in your vodka, you wouldn't say you overdosed. You'd say you were poisoned, and that's what's happening. Living as a person with a drug addiction today means that you're constantly at risk for that kind of poisoning, which is that much more of a reason to get off of it. Yet there's very little public effort being put into thinking creatively about how to turn this trend around. For years now, we've known that abstinence-only, big-book, 12-step style drug treatment doesn't work for opioid addiction. There are certainly some people it has worked for, but the research is very clear that more is needed. Now, what's known as medication-assisted treatment, which involves the drug buprenorphine, has been proven to be highly effective, yet the federal government puts unique restrictions on prescribing it. We simply don't treat any other disease like we do addiction. There's a bipartisan bill in Congress called the MAT Act that needs to pass as quickly as possible so that doctors can start prescribing this medication for people ready for it. In 2015, I edited and helped report a story by investigative reporter Jason Cherkis that lays all of this out. And if you're interested, I'd suggest reading the whole thing, which we can include in the notes to this video. Now, if you know anybody who might benefit from it, please share it. But I also want to talk about another approach to treatment that gets almost no attention in the mainstream press. And that's the so-called entheogenic drugs like psilocybin, ayahuasca, or ibogaine. Ayahuasca and Ibogaine in particular are already well in use by people seeking out help for addiction, and we're at a place in our opioid epidemic that we really can't afford not to take them seriously. Both Ibogaine and Ayahuasca are illegal in the United States, though Ayahuasca is allowed for some religious purposes. They're both available in underground settings, but people have also been traveling overseas to clinics or retreats specifically designed around Ibogaine or Ayahuasca treatments. Ibogaine originated in Africa, whereas ayahuasca comes from the Amazon, but both are available in Mexico and in much of the rest of the Western Hemisphere that isn't the United States. Now, I've never taken Ibogaine, but I tried ayahuasca while I was writing my first book, This Is Your Country on Drugs. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, I was in my late teens and early 20s, and LSD and shrooms were making a major comeback amid a general nostalgia for the 60s. So heading into the ayahuasca journey, I figured my experience with those psychedelics would easily prepare me for it. I couldn't have been more wrong. They're nothing alike. On acid, for instance, a wall might look to you like it's melting or waving. The hallucination looks very real, but you know that it's just a hallucination. You still have one foot anchored on Earth. 
Ayahuasca takes you out of this plane of reality entirely, and out of any sense of time itself. And most people experience what's known as a, quote, dark journey. And it is absolutely not even remotely fun at all. There's nothing recreational about it whatsoever. In the depths of an ayahuasca journey, you really don't know that you're hallucinating. You might be talking to your long-dead ancestor or to Harry Reid or a fire-breathing dragon, and it feels like you're actually with them. I've heard some people describe it as dreamlike, because when you're deep in a dream, you don't really know that you're dreaming. Nightmare might be a better term. Now, I wasn't taking it for addiction treatment, but having gone through it, it's easy to see its therapeutic potential, despite how horrifying it can be in the moment. Going into it, a friend had described it as six years of therapy packed into a single night, and I had no idea what he meant. But coming out of it, I knew precisely what he meant. Ibogaine, as I understand it, is similar, though it's said to be better, even better, at helping people detox and go through opioid or cocaine withdrawal. Now, the public is starting to see the potential. In 2019, Oakland moved to decriminalize entheogenic plants. In 2020, Santa Cruz, Ann Arbor, and Washington, D.C. did the same. In 2021, Seattle and Detroit moved in that direction. Scientific research has found clues to the potential mechanisms at work. One paper published in the International Journal of Drug Policy called Ayahuasca's Entwined Efficacy, an ethnographic study of ritual healing from addiction, summarized the research, writing, Published studies such as this one suggest that the brew increases neuroplasticity, facilitates adaptive neural architectural changes, and breaks down pathological associations, triggers, and cues associated with addiction. Ayahuasca is thought to increase 5-HT levels, attenuating withdrawal symptoms associated with a cessation of cocaine or heroin use. DMT, one of the active components of ayahuasca, is also thought to exert uh, anxiolytic effects through 5-HT1A receptor agonism. The central nervous system effects of ayahuasca are thought to involve a reduction in the activity of the default mode network, which is also reduced in meditative states. So the problem for treatments like this is that they can't really be studied in the way we've set up clinical research requirements. A randomized trial requires half the people to get a treatment and the other half to get a placebo. And giving somebody a placebo of ayahuasca is basically impossible. You would know. The randomized trial model puts 100% of the obligation for the efficacy of the therapy directly on the medication. But these types of treatments also involve the experience of rituals and inter interaction with therapists or clinicians or shaman or whatever you want to call them. Neither the drug itself nor the ritual itself is sufficient alone, but it's when they work together that they become effective. The randomized trial model simply can't deal with that. Anyway, this is all way too much for one radar, but a few takeaways. We have an absolute crisis on our hands, and we need to think creatively for ways out of it. And if you or somebody you know is stuck in a substance abuse rut, there are options that aren't just scam 28-day inpatient treatments. And Congress needs to hurry up and pass the MAT Act. And while they're at it, take DMT off the controlled substance list or at least make it available for treatment. I would like to present you with this honorary libertarian card. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank so, you. It was, it was beautiful. I'm tearing up. The beautiful radar. Yes. Excellent. Uh, Voting libertarian from now on. Sweet. Um, yeah. Libertarian no. Party was got to be very happy about that Washington, D.C. Absolutely. A, re Absolutely. a reason for Robbie to go to the polls. <sighs> Absolutely. It's beautiful. No, it's uh, got to legalize those, those hallucinations. I mean, what, what do I have to say? Yeah, and I, obviously I don't encourage anybody to break any federal laws. Nope. If you, but if don't you're, do that. If you are currently 
addicted to, let's say, heroin or pills, you are breaking federal laws right now. So I'm actually encouraging people to stop breaking federal laws. The, the money that we are dumping into these scam 28-day rehabs is in the, in the multi-billion. That have recidivism, or not recidivism, it's not the right, right. word, relapsing, Re- right? Yeah. Uh, relapse uh, is off the charts. Yeah, and, there, and I've, written in, I've written before about this that, so private equity is buying up all of these rehabs because they're so lucrative. There, there have been plenty of cases of people going out and paying people after they've left the 28-day thing. We'll give you $500 to relapse. And they give them drugs and $500 so that, that they come right back in and then say, well, hey, relapse is part of recovery. Okay, yes, relapse is part of recovery. But this is a this is yeah. scam 28-day uh, facility that is just taking another 30000 Because it can be $30,000 that you get from, say, Medicaid or a private insurance that is required to pay for this. And, and so they're, they're, they, they're not incentivized to help people, whereas... Uh, with, with an ayahuasca journey, the money isn't in there for either private equity or f- for big pharma. And so as a result, there isn't much emphasis on it. And it can be expensive. It could be $5,000 to go to Mexico or to go to Panama or to go to Costa Rica for one of these retreats. But, uh, but $5,000, if your friends and family can get it together uh, to change your life, uh, if, if you make a serious commitment to it, is, is more than worth it, not just for you, but for society. It shows that all drugs are not the same in our approach, the, the criminalized right. approach treat, that right. treats all. I think, I think of um, D.A.R.E., right? <laughs> Drug abuse, resistance, education. I don't know if you went through that as a kid. Oh, yes. That took this, this view that, like, yeah, there's no difference. If you try marijuana for the first, you might as well be taking heroin. Right. You might as well be, you know, in, straight into your veins. Which right. Is, <laughs> which is no one's experience with marijuana. <laughs> and also, I, I, I'd love anybody in the kind of DEA to go through an ayahuasca journey and then, and then pretend that that was recreational. Like, that was not fun. Like, you did that to search your soul. Like, you did that for reasons that go so far beyond just partying and having a good time. It, you're incapable of partying. You couldn't be at a club. You couldn't it, forget, like, would it be dangerous to operate a vehicle? You couldn't get behind the wheel. You're just, you're just laying there vomiting. Like, and I, it sounds horrible. And it kind of is. But you, but you come out of it feeling like, as my friend said, that you went through six years of therapy coming out clean on the other side. It's, it's, it's just a remarkable, uh, and, and you can really feel the way that it, that it would have potential for people who are stuck in these uh, addictive ruts. All right, I'll clear my schedule. And do we have, do we have Kamala yet? Because no, nobody has described an ayahuasca journey better, it turns out, than our good vice president, Kamala Harris. Right, the significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. The significance of the passage of time. And and you just feel like you're stuck in this loop, this time loop. Now, she wasn't on ayahuasca because there's no way she could even be standing at the podium, but she is accurately describing the, the sense. A, uh, a, a master of words, our vice president. <laughs> she is. Anyway, we'll have more rising right after this. Yesterday marked Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's first day of confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee as they consider her nomination to the Supreme Court. 
While official questioning doesn't begin until today, senators from both sides of the aisle laid the groundwork for what will surely be an intense week of back and forth. Here are a few of the day's standout moments. It's about your philosophy. Now it's going to be about the historic nature of the pick. And it's going to be about your philosophy. The bottom line here is when it is about philosophy, when it's somebody of color on our side, it's about we're all racist if we ask hard questions. It's not going to fly with us. We're used to it by now, at least I am. So it's not going to matter a bit. As someone who has deep respect for the adversarial system of justice, I understand the importance of zealous advocacy. But it appears that sometimes this zealous advocacy has gone beyond the pale. And in some instances, it appears that your advocacy has bled over into your decision-making process as a judge. We are holding a hearing for an accomplished, experienced, highly qualified nominee to the Supreme Court who came to us not through a dark money-funded turnstile, but through a fair and honest selection process. United States versus Hawkins. This was a child pornography case where the defendant distributed multiple images of child porn, possessed dozens more, including videos. The federal sentencing guidelines recommended a sentence of 97 to 121 months in prison. Prosecutors recommended 24 months in prison. Judge Jackson gave the defendant three months in prison. United States versus Chazen. There it's the, that case, the defendant possessed 48 files of child pornography. The federal guidelines recommended 78 to 97 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended the same. Judge Jackson sentenced him to 28 months. We've got a lot to dig into. Joining us now to weigh in is political commentator and New York legal aid public defender Olaimi Aluren and policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute, Rachel Bovard. Welcome to you both. Morning. Morning. So, Rachel, let's start with you. I, I saw that you had written about uh, the claims Josh Hawley was making about the nominee being, uh, being insufficiently harsh toward a sex offender. So in a recent piece with The Federalist, you argued the Senate should investigate Ketanji Brown-Jackson's, quote, leniency towards sex predators. Can you, you know, elaborate on that? Because I know Hawley was taking a lot of uh, flack from that, including from some conservatives. Uh, Andrew McCarthy of National Review was saying that it was a very disingenuous line of criticism. Yeah, I disagree pretty strongly with, with Andy on that point. I don't think it's a disingenuous line of criticism because it speaks too broadly her, her judicial philosophy. And in the argument that Josh Hawley was making, you know, it wasn't just a simple, you know, one-off, one case, you know, one note that she wrote while at law school. It was a pattern that began when she was in law school, continued through her advocacy on the Sentencing Commission, and then, you know, as her tenure as a judge. And I think there are people that just want to ask questions about this. And I think that's a perfectly acceptable, you know, line of inquiry. This is squarely in the lane of jurisprudential analysis. This goes to, you know, how she may reflect her opinions from the Supreme Court. But I think more than that, it speaks, you know, broadly to, uh, I think, the investigatory work that senators do, right? There's nothing wrong with actually looking into these claims. That is the point of advice and consent, which is the role of the Senate. And moreover, you know, the White House has not been forthcoming uh, with details about her time on the Sentencing Commission. You saw Senator Chuck Grassley, who's the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, reference the fact that the White House, through the Presidential Records Act or FOIA, is withholding 48,000 pages of documents relating to Judge Jackson's tenure. And so, yeah, I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, they may decide 
that this is not worth, you know, voting against her or blocking the nomination in some way. But I think it's perfectly acceptable uh, to look into this as a, as a line of inquiry from a Senate uh, confirmation hearing. Well, it, it's acceptable to, I guess, to ask questions, obviously. But like, are those questions valid or 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 like correct in the because so I read McCarthy's piece. Uh, we've wrote about it as reason as well. You know, the, the mandatory minimums are often draconian and like people on both sides of the aisle are OK with taking, you know, some of the lesser sentences because these sentences are crazy. Also, in a lot of the sex offender cases that I've looked at, you know, you have you know, it's child pornography. If it's 18 year old has pictures of 17 year old and they're in some kind of consensual relationship, like there's all the like a bunch of the a significant number of the people on the sex offender registry are actually teenagers. So I think there's a, there's a kind of. It's, it's, it's people have this imagine in their imaginations all like 45 year old creepy dudes or something abusing children like half, half or something people on the sex offender registry it's non-sexual crimes things right. of that nature so i think those cases exist i don't think that's what josh holly and if you look at the cases he cited is referring to in all the cases that we have records for and again there's 48,000 pages of documents we don't have so the ones that we do have in all the cases we have records for judge jackson went below the maximum below the minimum below what the government recommended in all cases but two. And in those two cases, she was statutorily bound uh, at sentencing. And we're dealing with cases, you know, my issue with the McCarthy piece is that he distinguishes and makes takes great pains to distinguish between uh, possession or production, I'm sorry, production and distribution as it, you know, these two things are separate, but I think, and in some cases they are, but it glosses over a lot of the details uh, that senators are raising questions about specific to Judge Jackson's sentencing relating to possessing, in one case, 102 child porn videos, distributing them, including images of the of the defendant's 10-year-old daughter. Um, another case involved possession uh, and intent to cross state lines to abuse a nine-year-old. So we're dealing with complicated factors that, you know, I think in the in the minds of you know, some senators should reflect heavier sentences. This isn't just a one-off about, you know, consensual adults and having images on their phone. There are much, much more complicated issues at stake here. And, uh, Alami, mean, what's, what's your read in general on the idea of whether judges, you know, should be able to go underneath these guidelines given the details of the case and also how, how Judge Jackson herself handled these particular ones? They should. This is a mythical standard. There is nothing in the Constitution that says that a Supreme Court justice needs to be as tough on crime or as punitive as humanly possible. In fact, we should be overjoyed at the idea of a Supreme Court justice that is going to honor and respect people's constitutional rights and try to have compassion for people that stand accused of crimes in our criminal system. We shouldn't want someone that's committed to mass incarceration. Further, I think it's important to say Ketanji Brown-Jackson is not just a black woman. What she is is the most qualified person to be nominated to the Supreme Court in recent history which is a fact known to all, recognized by the American Bar Association, including many of these Republican elected officials that are now pushing back, Republican appointed judges. And this is, despite these thinly veiled attempts to paint her as this leftist radical, this is a woman that's been endorsed by the largest police union in the country and victim advocacy, uh, victim advocacy groups as well. This should be a day we should be excited about the idea that this kind of legitimacy and excellence is reascending to our court. And Rachel, it feels like some of this from Holly, at least, is you know because Holly plays all of these weird games with the with the fringe element of the party, and it seems like he's dipping into the 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 weird uh, kind of cult conspiracy stuff around you know uh, child predation and trying to activate some of that and and make it impossible for for this for for you know the Senate to have kind of a reasonable debate around 
these sentencing guidelines here. So, I mean, are, are, you, are you concerned that that, that that element that thinks that there are like cannibals that are running the government is, are going to get activated by this and, uh, and see her as like some kind of vanguard for that? If you're if you're referencing a resurgence of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, I don't yeah. think that's going to happen here. Um, you know, I I don't. I've watched Josh Hawley for several years now on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, you can take issue with how else how he may do his job in other areas, but I've always thought his line of inquiry has been you know fairly mainstream, and he pulled this from her records, the records that we do have. You know, I go back to how you know another issue where he questioned a nominee that got a ton of establishment press. You know, Wall Street Journal editorializing against him for questioning uh, Judge Naomi Rao, who was he, who was later confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, who he then voted for. But this is kind of what he does. And, and frankly, in, in the sense that he questions the nominee, I think legitimately gets responses to those questions and then makes an informed choice. I actually think this is what senators are supposed to be doing. Um, there's this, I think, belief that when your side nominates a judge, you're just supposed to rubber stamp them. Um, and that's why Josh Hawley took so much heat for questioning Naomi Rao, because it was a Trump-appointed judge. But that's not the case. You're actually supposed to do an educated line of inquiry. And I think, you know, if you actually read, you know, what Josh Hawley put forward, all of it's from her records. You know, I've seen some commentators try to say, uh, on one hand, well, this is a legitimate debate, you know, among legal scholars about mandatory minimums and sentencing guidelines, but this is also a defamatory smear against Judge Jackson. Well, it can't be both. If you're going to recognize it as a legitimate debate that goes on, you have to also acknowledge that people have different opinions on this and respect them when they do. Judge Brown Jackson's work as a public defender continues to draw criticism. As we all just heard, Senator John Cornyn accused the judge of allowing her advocacy work to bleed into her court decisions. And last week, Mitch McConnell accused Brown Jackson of a, quote, special empathy for criminals, which Whoopi Goldberg hit back at yesterday on The View. Let's watch. I also wonder, because, you know, Mitch McConnell says her supporters look at her resume and deduce a special empathy for criminals. You know, I know you don't mean this, but that sounds like code. Yeah. She comes from a it's law serious. enforcement family. It, but it, it, it doesn't matter. Listen, she represented a lot of people. And that's the gig when you're a federal public that's defender. That's what you're you supposed to, to do. I, I think Lisa, what you were just hitting on yes, is so them. important. It's code. And yeah, it's code to tell you that she may be sympathetic to black people. Yeah. Uh, Alimi, how would you uh, respond to that? I mean, yeah, what, what's so wrong with having empathy for, for criminals or for everyone, right? Now, maybe you Absolutely. still have to sentence them harshly, but, uh, you know, what's your, what's your take? No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it is. It's a dog whistle. That's very clear. And I want to say this. The issue people are having is not that Holly or any of these Republicans are questioning or, you know, trying to discern anything about this nominee. That's not the issue. The issue is that they're attempting to present the standard as though a judge or a Supreme Court justice is obligated to be harsh on crime or tough on crime or have these pro-punitive uh, belief systems that they're not obligated to have. That's not the constitutional standard, and that's not the standard that everybody is looking to. So I want to say that it's not just that he's questioning her. It's what he's questioning her about and what he's implying. And the implication here is that a Supreme Court justice or someone is supposed to be as punitive as possible, because in all of these cases, that he cites, no one walks free. Someone is punished, someone is sentenced, someone is sent to jail for years. The issue is that she's not as, as severe as she humanly possibly could be. That is the problem. And absolutely, the issue here is not just that, you know, she's sympathetic to criminals. It's the people that stand accused of crimes that are usually poor black and brown people and people that look like her. That's what the issue is, and it's a dog whistle. And Rachel, what are you hearing from Republicans about how, 
how, how much of a fight they're going to put up here. Because you, know, you had Joe Manchin recently uh, take down a uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, the Federal Reserve nominee, but that was at the behest of you know, basically fossil fuel companies. But when it comes to, you know, as long as fossil fuel companies and the banks are not interested in an issue, Manchin is pretty reliably democratic. And I don't see them as particularly invested in this fight, which means that they probably have the 50 votes. So how, how aggressively are Republicans planning to go after this? You know, I think Republicans, you heard them, you know, almost to a person yesterday say, you know, we want to have a, a respectful dialogue with the nominee and then we're going to vote, to, you know, whether or not to confirm her. I don't think this is a situation where <laughs> they are going to blockade uh, the vote unless something drastically changes between now and when the vote is held. I don't think you're going to see, you know, the tactics that they've used against other nominees because, you know, there's a difference between right, someone serving on the Federal Reserve or someone serving at the uh, Small Business Administration and a Supreme Court justice. Um, but at the same time, you know, you saw Republicans make pains to point out they aren't going to unleash the tactics that Democrats used against Justice Kavanaugh. They don't want to do that. And so I don't think you're going to see, you know, the sort of nastiness that emerged uh, from that debate. But, you know, you will see senators question the nominee. I don't and I and I reject this assumption that, you know, questioning in a certain way is a dog whistle for whatever. Like they're these are the advice and consent role means you look into the nominee's record, temperament, uh, you know, and judicial philosophy because the highest court in the country that matters. And so I think that's what they're going to be doing. Yeah. Allow me to, to Rachel's point. I mean, these have gotten so heated. The, the Supreme Court nomination proceedings have gotten so heated in recent years. Um, the, the you know, the treatment of Brett Kavanaugh, I think, is something like a lot of people cite on the right, even, you know, and on the right running from like, you know, fervently pro-Trump all the way even to like never Trump type people. We're all pretty united in in thinking that was just, you know, beyond the pale. And so now when they hear that, you know, some of the aggressive, that aggressive questioning of, of, of Brown Jackson is getting criticized and right maybe it's a little too aggressive but it just it seems well this is the new this is how it goes now well brown jackson isn't accused of sexual assault right but, thank, but anyway, you. Ali- thank Ali- you go ahead thank what's your, you. what's your I take i was going to say that <laughs> like we can't just ignore the part where he was accused of sexual assault and pretty gruesome gruesome accusations that is why he had a tougher confirmation hearing and we cannot leave that important context out it's not the same we're comparing apples and vegetables and we cannot do that and uh, rachel actually how would you compare the pre accusation of sexual assault uh, confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh to what we've seen so far with Brown Jackson, because they, they, they tried to go after a little bit of perjury, which I think was legit. He actually did commit perjury. Uh, but in general, he was cruising toward confirmation before that happened, right? Yeah, it was a pretty standard confirmation hearing. If you remember, uh, the completely unfounded allegations of sexual assault were unleashed like the last day of the hearing. Um, and then it just devolved into that. And I and I do think it's worth pointing out that, you know, he was not at all credibly accused. He was and then he was on top of that accused of gang rape. He was forced to defend his virginity. He was uh, dis- dismissed for liking beer, for throwing ice. Uh, it wasn't just that they tried to derail his confirmation. They tried to ruin his life. And that oh. is what I think a lot of Republicans are responding to, to say, look, you know, yes, the confirmation process has devolved. I think we can probably all agree on that. The judicial confirmation process is, you know, used to be, you know, you didn't even have to uh, invoke cloture on nominees, right? Like they were just confirmed uh, without a filibuster. We don't exist in that environment anymore. And I think 
the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh was the absolute basement gutter uh, of what that has turned into. And I hope we can avoid going back to well, that ever again. Eli, I mean, so, how, how, how much goes back to uh, Mitch McConnell refusing to you know, meet with a Barack Obama's nominee? Do you think that or does it go all the way back to Bork? Or do you think that there was some fundamental break when when President Obama was told, no, you actually do not get to name a Supreme Court justice despite what the Constitution says? Absolutely. I absolutely think that's relevant here. But what I think ultimately what happened in the specific cases of Kavanaugh is that he was accused of, of a sexual crime. And I want to say this, you know, we've characterized his confirmation hearings as cruel and unfair and they're unfounded. So it sounds to me like we're in agreement that people who stand accused of crimes should be received by people who are going to have compassion and be open to it. That's what it sounds like to me. So I'm very excited about about Kentaji Brown Jackson rising to the Supreme Court. Yeah, particularly those accused of Right. Sex offenses. People, I think people just mm. accused of something can't right. just be That's thrown in jail about. for forever. I agree well, with that. Democrats or purged from polite society on mere accusation, <laughs> as the left attempted to do to Gavin. Found common ground. Yeah, yeah I guess so. <laughs> Good job. Rachel Alimi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And coming up, we have a sobering update on the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. That's next. The hunger crisis in Afghanistan has reached unparalleled proportions. 13,000 Afghan newborns have died from malnutrition this year alone. And over 3 million children are in dire need of nutritional support since January 2022. This is according to a report from the Human Rights Watch. Acute hunger nearly doubled between last July and this month. And while the international community has offered humanitarian aid without a functioning central banking system in Afghanistan, there's not much that that aid can do. What's more is about 95% of the country's population doesn't have enough food to eat and over 3 million children are in need of nutritional support. And it, I, I was checking out the UN numbers and it, it creeps up to 99% of households headed by women. So 99% of households in Afghanistan headed by women are facing acute hunger at this point. Then, now, the, the estimate of the, of, the, of the malnutrition deaths comes from the number of premature births that have happened, about 125,000 premature births since January of 2022, uh, you know, a lot of them as a result of malnutrition, and they know that uh, you know, a, a significant portion, you know, five to ten percent of those are, are going to die within the first year. So it's not. So that's so that's an estimate, but the it's it's just apocalyptic um, with what's going on in Afghanistan, and it's and it's the function of the U.S. seizing the the uh, Afghan central bank's reserves and not allowing it to enable a, empower a, a functioning economy. Yeah. It says in this article that we were just reading from that um, in recent weeks, the U.S. and the World Bank did actually release. They unlocked billions of dollars in assistance. But then the problem now is that there's still restrictions on Afghanistan's central bank. Um, and so they're not able to get large transactions and withdrawals out. So there's, you know, it's layer by layer by layer in order to get that money. And that is one of the problems that um, they're they're facing. But also apparently donors, you know, and all of this comes down to we're just continuing the war, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different form of war now because we're saying we don't like the Taliban. We don't want them in power. I mean, look, they're in power. They're the government. It is what it is. If we're, you know, I mean, we, we beg the Saudis for help and they don't ha and they're also a, a monarchy. 
you know, it's not like a, a great democracy. So, you know, I get they the Taliban. They just executed dozens of people. Uh, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, but donors are even saying, well, they're worried. They don't, you know, they're not sure about even giving money to Afghanistan because they're afraid it's going to yep. end, up, end up in the hands of the Taliban. And also our sanctions make it really hard for humanitarian aid groups to get money into the country. So even, 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 a, and even though the, the Treasury has said, no, 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 don't worry, it's fine. If you're doing humanitarian aid, we're not going to sanction you. The, a, lot of the, a lot of the financial institutions are like, no, like we don't trust you. The, the, the Kafka nature of the, of the U.S. sanctions regime is such that if you get caught up in it accidentally, it's almost impossible to get out of it. So they're like, you know what, it's just easier for us not to give anything. And here, from, here's from, from one U.N. official writes, you know, hospital wards are filled with children suffering from malnutrition, smaller than they should be, many weighing at one year what an infant of six months would weigh in a developed country, and some so weak they are unable to move. So this is just, you know, You know what this murder. sounds to it's me murder. like. It's horrible. Yeah, it's, it almost sounds like we're trying to punish the Afghan people mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. not resisting the Taliban, you know, for even waving them, cheering them in and saying, okay, well, if this is what you want, then this is what you're going to get. Because clearly their lives are way worse off right now, and it's not because of the Taliban, actually. Right. It's because of their lack of right. being able to get to the funds. And yeah. it's just and punishment. Right, and obviously obviously, the babies were not around on 9-11. But 80 to 90% of the country was not around on 9-11. Like, so the idea that we're punishing a country for September 11th, 2001, when... I think they've only been punished. Tiny. I think we punished I, I them. Think, yeah, I think, I think yeah. they, they were punished, yeah. 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 And now, they're, of course, they're going to... How can they be faulted for being non-hostile to the Taliban taking over? Why should they go up against them? We're, not, we're done. We're out. We're not, coming, we're not coming to your rescue if you stand up to the Taliban. So why would they pretend otherwise? This is going to be the government of the country. The government we tried to install collapsed immediately. And the, right. reason, and the reason that uh, public opinion was, they don't, the Afghan people don't love the Taliban. They don't, they don't they didn't like that, that period. The reason that public opinion moved toward allowing a restoration of the Taliban was because they wanted an end to the violence. The, mm -hmm. en the endless violence that was killing you know, thousands and thousands of, of people endlessly. And in fact, the takeover of by the Taliban of Afghanistan did end the violence. Like the, that, right. that part of it has ended. And so we've transitioned the violence right. to an, and, an and even it, more and horrific And it's unfortunately kind. in danger of ending, you know, good things that were progress. Absolutely. Women in schools right. that I now I think they right. said actually, they could have, right, they, right. but there are, right, there are some concerns for backsliding in terms of human certainly rights and, and progress, absolutely. Yeah. But like, it can't be, our job at the end of the day, it, we tried, it didn't work. We couldn't, we couldn't force this country to right. adopt the values we wanted it to have. It just right. didn't work. Well, and, they, were, yeah. they were way more likely to actually adopt those values if they have money. I mean, people, when they have prosperity, yeah, you're right. they have an economy, they need women to work, they need more people to work because they've got a robust economy, they need people yeah. to go to school, they need, you know, they start giving out rights when actually economies start booming. Uh, and, and so by doing this, we're not only harming them physically, through starving them, but we're also harming them, their, just their progress mm -hmm. towards a freer people. Yeah. Yeah. And women and girls uh, can't go to work and go to school if, they're, if they've been starved to death. Right. 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 Yeah. And if there's no jobs, then they're certainly not going to be going to, to work. If there's yeah. only enough jobs for only a few men, 
because the economy is being destroyed. So yeah, and historically, periods of you know throughout history, periods of mass starvation and great hardship, it, it, right? It, it causes, if anything, people become more sort of cult-like or more right. tribal, you know, more backward and, and barbaric and, and, you know, more superstitious, all the kinds of stuff yeah. we were trying to overcome, that's, that gets worse if you deprive people of food. Right, and you're hallucinating right. uh, by starving, too. Yeah. Like, you're actually hallucinating. It's, it's like the most, oh, God, it's the most awful way to die. All we have to do is release the central bank reserves. It's not our money. I give it back. We should It'll take that. a while to get the economy going, in, but just give them their money back. Let them sort it out. Yeah. Outrageous. Anyway, thank you, guys. Uh, we'll have more Rising right after this. So we have an interesting tech censorship story. So the Babylon Bee, which is the satire site, uh, I think it's funny. Ryan doesn't Alleged think satire site. Ryan doesn't think it's quite as Citation's funny. Citation still needed for that. They're, uh, they're going to be off Twitter, I, I suspect permanently. So their, their account was temporarily suspended uh, because of a tweet about Rachel Levine, uh, who is this uh, high-profile trans woman. She's U.S. Sec- uh, Assistant Secretary of Health. Uh, and she came from the Pennsylvania Department of Health or health officials there. Uh, she's a trans woman. And so their tweet, the, the, uh, the Babylon Bee's tweet, was calling her man of the year. Um, like I said, just one bomb after another. It's right. not even funny on its own. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that's funny. Uh, but Twitter said it was hateful conduct. It violates their hateful conduct policy, which, okay, so that's you may not promote violence against Violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. So they're saying that violates that policy. So they would have to take the tweet down. The Babylon Bee said, no, we're not going to take that tweet down, so we're just going to be off Twitter. So, look, and I, I don't think that joke's funny. I don't think it's funny to make fun of trans people. Um, that said... She is a public official, and there's a, I think, a, a good tradition or a, 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 it's, it, this is a good thing to have in a, in a free society, in a democracy, a norm whereby you're allowed to kind of harshly criticize or even make fun of public officials, government officials. This or, is or obviously. wish death on, which. Or I even. Mean, or even like right. People are constantly wishing, like, wishing like the worst yeah. on people. Yeah. And not just. So, yeah, to me. They, Trump is Cheeto Hitler. Right. And, How many times has he been called that? And if, you want to, and if you want to keep it on the transphobia and homophobia theme, if you apply this rule consistently, let's say you support, you're supportive of this, if you apply it consistently, anybody who has made homophobic attacks on Lindsey Graham or anybody who has mm-hmm. shared like, pictures of Trump and Putin right. kissing each other right. uh, ha- have engaged in similar, maybe the degree is less, but it's the same kind of, of harassment. It's, it's, it's homophobic. It's ugly. Uh, it, you know, every, every time Lindsey Graham does anything that Democrats don't like, they come at him. Like, like some portion of Twitter comes at him in a homophobic way. And so should that entire portion be taken down? I, I would prefer that people behave themselves in a more civilized way. Right. They don't. And so if you're not going to punish those people, then it's, it's hard to see how you would then punish very similar behavior on the other side. Yeah, because this is a pretty broad policy. Age, uh, you know, disability, uh, gender identity. I mean, yeah, just... Oh, age. 
Yeah. Right, just saying these old lunatics could get you. Right. That's disability. That's ableist and. Yeah, I just ages. did it. I just did it. Yeah. Yeah. So it does. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So <laughs> guess what I'm saying. I mean, I and I I think that. Well, for 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 one, I think that the <laughs> when you first said the Babylon Bee was taken off Twitter, I thought it was because they had so consistently been not funny that they were mistaken. For that they were just so consistently mistaken for fake news that. That people were finally like, you know what? We, like, you never tell a funny joke. And so you. a good. I've so laughed at some Babylon. Your satire license. What's a good Babylon? Your satire license joke. is hereby revoked. revoked. I don't. Uh, I, I think The Onion's gone a little downhill, uh, sadly. Uh, Reductress is by far my favorite satire site. I don't know if you've seen, seen any this. Reductress content. Uh, it's, it's sort of a satire of, like, I don't know, a, a sort of. Uh, like, progressive white woman. Maybe not white so much, but. Progressive young woman, like the, the the female experience. It's so funny. It's really funny. Um, yeah, check that out. Yeah, check check out Reductress. I'm looking at Babylon B to see, but I, I'm not going to be able to come up with. And uh, so Babylon B says they're going to die on this hill. They said they would die on this hill, which is easier to do now because Twitter. I'm sure you know this doesn't yield that much benefit anymore, um, other than the joy of being there, which is not very much. It doesn't. Uh, oh, you mean in terms of some, like traffic. sending audience? Yeah, it doesn't. Tweeting uh, articles and videos and stuff just doesn't. There's not a lot of uh, follow through anymore. Why do so, you think that is? I think they decided to punish uh, links that lead you off site. I, I think like Facebook did. Yeah, you know, like Facebook did. So, so if you ago. send a tweet, this is just my theory. I don't know that this is right. for sure. I think they changed it so that if you include a link that when you would click on it, you would no longer be on Twitter, the algorithm deprioritizes it so that uh, you'll stay on Twitter. Which is, again, that's totally fine uh, for Twitter to do, but then it is of less use to us as journalists who are trying to They direct. think we're not spending enough time on Twitter. Yeah. What is wrong with them? <laughs> right. Have, but, they, have they seen my screen report? But the, right, the implication of this is that in the last few weeks, at least, I know I've been spending way less time on Twitter, or, or I'm tweeting less. There seems to be less Because there's less point. It. Yeah, there's it. less point. Right. So... Twitter slowly self-destructing, which is just as well. <laughs> uh, a Babylon B CEO won't help Twitter eradicate objective truth by deleting the satire of Rachel Levine message. This is uh, what, what are we what are we looking at here? Is it satire or objective truth? This is like, come on, Babylon B. Which one is it? Oh, right. right. So another thing. So they're also saying. They're they're making twin defenses, right? They're right. saying, of course they are. This is satire, so you shouldn't. But also, it's true. Right, but they're also saying, you know, bio- trans women are not actually women. They're, you know, biologically men. That whole, the whole kind of social conservative argument. So, which is, that's, I mean, that's an argument they can make, but. Which then means they're, what, that it wasn't satire, which go, goes back to my point that they're, right. like, it's not funny. Right. Like, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just mean to just. I think there should be wide uh, deference to the principle that it's okay to mock public officials, including for their appearance, because there's really no other way to do it. Like, we're, we're, like we're going to do that. People are liberals really going to stop making fun of Trump's hair and his ridiculous um, tan and all, everything else about him. His entire physicality is hilarious. I don't think so. No. So to be to be even a little bit consistent, I think you have to let things like this go. 
but Twitter has decided, no, we will just enforce things, I assume, very hypocritically and very selectively until we get regulated out of existence the next time Republicans have control of Congress and have said, well, enough is enough. And, and in principle, so great. In, in principle, I stand with Babylon B's right to be terrible. Uh, in, in particular, I won't miss the Babylon Bee. I'm trying to, I, I can't, like, I'm trying to, I can't remember which, I have laughed at a lot. I think they're kind of funny, but to each, to each I'll, his I'll, own. I'll, I'll see, I'll, each I'll, I'll check own. it out, see if I can find a couple funny ones. Uh, I used to love the Onion videos, uh, which they do, they don't do as many, uh, maybe they Yeah, those were good. Uh, the, uh, like, the, mor- the Onion morning show was so good. Uh, now, now that we host a morning show, yeah. it's even, it's even <laughs> yeah. funnier. Yes, those were incredible. <laughs> All right, well, we'll have more, more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Protect democracy. This is what we hear over and over as to why we're invo- involving ourselves between two neighboring countries 6,000 miles away while risking escalating a nuclear war. Ukrainians need our help fighting against a brutal dictator who controls the press and squashes dissent, they say. Now, that might be true about Putin, but oddly, the very man, Zelensky, who was supposed to be protecting fragile Ukrainian democracy, just banned 11 opposing political parties and nationalized all news to ensure the only message people hear is, quote, unified information. Yes, the man who is supposed to be protecting democracy just got rid of it using emergency powers under martial law. One party he banned, the For Life Party, holds 43 seats in Ukraine's national parliament. It's the largest of the opposition parties and even condemned Russia's invasion. But as of right now, they're suspended, all because we're protecting democracy. This illogical rhetoric would be typically mind-bending, but we've heard so much illogical propaganda these past couple of years, many of us are desensitized to it by now. Nothing makes sense anymore, but we could still try. So try to make sense of this. The 11 political parties Zelensky banned are mostly considered left-wing. The Opposition for Life Party, which I just mentioned, Sharij Party, Nashi Opposition Bloc, Left Opposition, Union of Leftists, Derzava, Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party of Ukraine, the Socialists, and Volodymyr Saldo's Bloc. Many of these parties are anti-war, against joining any foreign military alliance, and call for better better relations with their Russian cousins. And by the way, I say cousins because that's what they are. It's important to remember that 11 million Russians have Ukrainian family. Putin's own goddaughter is Ukrainian. These two countries are very intertwined. In the address announcing the ban of the parties, Zelensky stated, the activities of those politicians aimed at division or collusion will not succeed, but will receive a harsh response. Therefore, the National Security and Defense Council decided, given the full scale of war unleashed by Russia and the political ties that a number of political structures have with this state, to suspend any activity of a number of political parties for the period of martial law. So there you have it. War is the excuse. Now, I get that Ukraine is at war, and I deeply sympathize with the Ukrainian people dodging bombs because their government is corrupt and under the influence, the influence of money, that is. And that's same same for the Russians. It's a, you know, both sides are very extremely corrupt, and they're fighting, and these average citizens are trying to dodge everything that's going on there. It's tragic. But when you begin to strip people of their political power, their right to vote, and the right to voice their displeasure, you undermine democracy. So as many sit here and advocate for a war under the pretense of we're fighting for Ukrainian democracy, it's literally being stripped from the Ukrainian people as we speak, and not exactly by Russia. 
So if banning political activity from the opposition isn't bad enough, Zelensky also has stripped Ukraine of free speech. In an effort to combat misinformation, Zelensky has announced information-based content will be streamlined into United News. So basically, Ukraine has now become a one-narrative nation with essentially one political party, Real Democratic. The problem is so many justify this activity because once again, it's wartime and extreme measures are necessary. Ukraine is not alone in this. Russia is also banning anti-war information and jailing dissidents, but that's supposed to be expected. After all, we're siding with Ukraine because we're helping them preserve democracy from Russia, even though they're now acting just like Russia. But whatever, we're not supposed to try to understand it. Just like how we're not supposed to try and understand why several very ultra-nationalist neo-Nazis supporting Ukrainian political parties get to remain functioning while leftist parties are being banned. It doesn't matter. We're on the side of the good guys, they say. Now, I want to mention, I am not just picking on Ukraine on this one, guys. Uh, this is anti-war voices have been silenced and jailed since uh, the beginning of time, I would imagine. Here in the United States, uh, we have jailed anti-war voices since World War One. We jailed, uh, we even have jailed during the Vietnam, I mean, every single war, we have gone after people who are anti-war. There was the Boston Five during the Vietnam War where they, uh, you know, they were trying to kind of talk to young men on how they could avoid military service and they ended up serving prison time for that the world for whatever reason is extremely against people who are against war and if you're against war you're a putin puppet we've heard this a lot from the people who are saying this war uh shouldn't be happening because you, you know ukraine needs to maybe go to the table and actually negotiate with their cousins and i meant that literally people need to remember that this is more akin to a civil war than it is one country just wanting to take another country. These people are related. Again, Putin's own goddaughter is a Ukrainian. So this, it, you know, but the, the war machine, and Ryan has talked about this numerous times, the war machine, you know, the drums just keep beating on and on and on and on. And everybody just wants to march towards war. I mean, Face the Nation was crazy this past Sunday where the host was grilling the U.S. ambassador, to, uh, the China ambassador here in the United States. You know, it was like, why aren't you doing more? against Russia. What what do you so we're hearing this constant war drum beating and if you're against war, you get jailed. You get silenced. You're anti uh you know, you're you're an, you're, you're not a patriot. You're even potentially a traitor or treasonous. Including by Russia, right? Russia is jailing anti-war dissidents yes, right yes. now. Yeah, yeah. Right, I mentioned that. So Russia's doing it, but that's expected. We say that's well, that's Russia. That's why we're fighting against Russia. That's why we can't let Russia win because they're anti-democratic. Yet Ukraine literally did the very things that Russia does. And and we don't have any right to sit here and say that we're any better because we we do it too here in the United States. Right, but it's a rather critical... Well, well we, don't, we, are, we don't... No, 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 yeah, we don't... Jail we are that. better. <laughs> we are better. definitely better. We do not... not by, I, I mean, mean, today, we, we do not jail people like that. Like they've criminalized basically any... Yeah. Any social media posts, they're like, no, like our, the Russian, r Russian restrictions on anti-war activity are right. much more draconian. I mean, the, the Ukraine, those Ukrainian restrictions are also more draconian. Right, but no it, one is banned. You're not banned but here. A, a, Actually, a, a critical detail, you, though, is that Russia invaded Ukraine like that. Sure. Like, so it's not a civil war like Russia in Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. We, we accept a lot of restrictions on individual liberties in the military. Like we, we have just accepted as societies across the globe 
that in order for a military to be, now there, there, there are people on the fringe who, and I'm kind of among them, who, who would contest that and say you can actually have a, a more effective military in a more democratic way. But set that aside. People have agreed that in a military setting, you, put, you set aside individual liberties for the sake of the whole, and you establish hierarchies and, and rules so that the military can be the mo most effective. When a country is invaded, like everyone and everyone, be it becomes militarized. You know, and you know, we we talked earlier. I think you were saying earlier that like there's not a whole lot of difference if if you know, kind of a Russian oligarchy or a Ukrainian oligarchy is running running Ukraine. A key difference is that Russia is currently leveling Ukraine, like right. creating a refugee crisis of biblical proportions. So people aren't going to be ruled by oligarchs of any stripe because they're not being ruled at all because they're, they're being be driven dead. out of their country. They're being killed and, well, that's and, and, the, and the, block by right. block, they're in, the, everything they've built over 30 years is being systemically right. destroyed. Right. They're not doing that because fun, Russia we invaded have to Ukraine. I get that, right. but they're not doing it for fun. They're not going there. They're just blowing stuff up because they think it's fun and cool. They're doing it because they're trying to get Zelensky to the negotiation table to reject what's the, the West. What's the evidence of that? He has said, like Zelensky has rejecting. said that he's willing to negotiate. No, and he has. And then he, he goes to the table and then he says, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to negotiate this X, Y, Z thing. So they're not. But so, he's Russia's, not... so Russia's a good faith actor here, but but Zelensky no. is not no, willing no, no, to no. negotiate. No, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. We will right. not sit here and try to put, paint me as some kind of Putin puppet. Like, that's what I'm saying. You, I've not well, what, said okay, that. Okay, then, then restate it. What are, you, what are you saying that Russia is up what to What I'm here? saying is that. Russia and Ukraine are neighbors, and they're related. They're literally related. They have family going back and forth between country to country. So they need to be nice and, and work on good relations with their neighbor. But the West came in in 2014. What did the West do? You know the history of this. But the West they, came in and, and got rid of the, the, the pro-Russian, which is what they've done. Now these 11 political Kim, parties are pro-Russian parties. But shouldn't you make that pitch parties. to Russia, I guess, is that you're saying, right, they're no. neighbors, they should get along. So isn't, but yeah, isn't I mean, the person who needs should. to hear that message? Message right now, Vladimir Putin. What is it? So, what do you want? So, th th right, they have for years, and I've talked about this ad nauseum. For 30 years, they've said you cannot bring NATO up to our border. Ukraine basically giving them the big middle finger, saying we'll do whatever we want. And then Russia says, well, then you're going to have to pay for that because, by the way, you've been under our control for since the dawn of time. Now, is that right? No. Ukrainians should have independence. They deserve independence, and I believe Russia will probably ultimately. You know, I mean, maybe not any, it, it might take more years, but Ukraine, you know, the differences between the people are enough that they absolutely should be independent and the people want that independence. So they should have that. It's right. their, it's, it's what, you know, what they, what they want. But the reality of it is the West shouldn't be involved in this. We shouldn't be egging Ukraine on into fighting this, giving them more weapons for Russia to continue to blow up. Russia said, they specifically stated, we are demilitarizing. So what do we do? We give them more weapons to continue militarizing them so they have more to blow up. So rather than forcing Ukraine into a peaceful position with their very hostile neighbor, right, at this point, who doesn't want to actually be that hostile with them, we are instead we <laughs> arming them. Doesn't want to be that hostile. They right. invaded them. No, they're, they're they related. They invaded they're related. them. <laughs> I get that, but there's a reason why they did it, and we can't ignore that and just act like uh, but no. That, but but there's a reason why we nowhere. did it because they were the so like it, 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 to they only start with. There's only re it acts like they're this like it's totally there's no, no choice, choice. But to, they had, I, I, like there are reasons I mean, we, we did the things that caused it. the reasons yeah. that they do. I There's mean, look, always reasons. We pushed them towards it. We pushed them towards it. I mean, we absolutely pushed them towards it by continuing to inch NATO up to their borders. We can't just forget that and act like that didn't happen. 
Right, so and we, we both said that we shouldn't Ukraine. have done that. Right. But it, but they really so shouldn't want, have started so killing they, a bunch. So whatever of they, what if they, what if they so nuke Kiev? Like, so they're like anything is justified. Like, yeah. what's the line for you? So I is, mean, come is, on. I mean, there are they the going to for one? Do you think the invasion was justified? No, it, I, I think that the, okay, I think that we, agree. we were helping Ukraine ask for it. But I don't think I don't know what else Russia would have done. I don't know what else I could have expected them to do. I think if you poke a bear and not, you, didn't you expect, expect the bear's going to gonna fight back. You, so you didn't expect uh, them to invade, expect, and, right, I didn't expect them to invade, and right? and you don't think it was justified. So what are we? Uh, well, what are I, we it's not that I, about? we're disagreeing on the fact that. Uh, well, maybe it, it. I don't know what else Ukraine, what else Russia could have done. Besides, when you poke a bear, what do you expect to happen? Russia is not a bear, like a bear. <laughs> Russia is a, a government, and government uh, government should be responsible so okay. and not murder people. Like just saying, well, that's so what the government does. You, they beat well, up that's like what war is. that. You know, black kids shouldn't have been loitering on the street. They got shot. That's what the government does. Like, no, I don't accept that as a person who is a critic of what governments do. It is illegitimate for governments to murder people. They can, they cannot. It is illegitimate for a government to assert that I actually rule this group of people and I will expand the reach of my rule. No, that I reject that. We are governments are comprised of people who should be expected to behave in moral humanitarian ways and it is wrong it, the, it is the most obviously wrong thing to murder people. I don't care if they want Oh, NATO moved too far. Right. We shouldn't have done it. I, we agree that like that was a bad tactical move because it it changed Russia's thinking about this or what they have to do perhaps. But I, I, the aspiration of people not to live under the repressive government of Vladimir Putin is a noble and legitimate aspiration. You were the one that was just saying that there's got to be a line somewhere and that at some point we would then attack and go to war with Russia. That's not me. You're the one who said that. So where right, is Russia's line? If they invaded line? us. And Defen the defensive so violence is proper. Like if I get, if Ryan starts beating me up, and I start fighting back. Would you say, hey, hey, Robbie, I thought you were against violence. What are you doing? No. Well, that's kind Ryan of what you guys are Russia saying is Ryan Russia. in this scenario. Right. So what do and you And then expect? you say, well, you... but Ryan said he didn't want you sitting over here. He that's said he really didn't like it. He said he really didn't like it. Like, what come do you on. What, what do you think what I would expect what... is Russia not to invade Ukraine. Yeah. Like, just yeah. What do you think they should have done with NATO? What do you if, what do you expect so them to do if NATO to go, keeps go going up to their go border? Negotiate something. If Say, there look, are we, nukes on their front porch, what do you expect them to do about it? What is reasonable? Negotiate something. Should so so in your Didn't mind they then? The, the, so the United States could have just invaded Cuba during the missile crisis. Like we didn't invade Cuba, well, we, we shouldn't have. What, I mean, what we, did we, we do? Did we but did we the did the pigs exactly. So come on, so, let's not forget but, about no, that. No, but that wasn't because Russia was involved there. So well, we shouldn't have done yeah. that. Yeah. No, yeah, and we also right. should we not have done, done that. that. We shouldn't have but, done any no, of our invasions. We should not have started a war over any any any, Rush, any Russian provocation. Like we shouldn't allow nukes being pointed at us at our border. And I don't think any other country should allow nukes to be pointed at them at their border. I think it's reasonable for them to say, stop doing that. Russia did. Russia asked us for 30 years. This was not like an overnight thing. They asked us for 30 years to stop. So, yeah, I do put a lot of blame squarely on NATO expansion on this whole entire thing. And then to sit there and say, well, Russia should have just continued right, to do nothing. Uh, they're telling us uh, we got to go. Look, this is an actual yeah. debate you won't see on any <laughs> any media channel that is either relentlessly one way or the other. We're actually arguing out the, this kind of this kind of thing, which is what people want to see. So thank you very much, Kim. And we'll have more rising right after this.
A top Missouri Republican Senate candidate, Eric Greitens, has been accused of abuse. The former governor's ex-wife is accusing him of abuse that includes, quote, unstable and coercive behavior. These new allegations were unveiled in court records on Monday, but Greitens seemed to deny the claims on Twitter, saying, quote, I have faith and I know that ultimately truth will always prevail. Greitens is part of a crowded GOP field vying for the open Senate seat in the state's primary contest. And until now, he looked to be the favorite. Worries of this latest news is shaking up Republicans and leaving room for Democrats in Missouri hoping to take advantage. Democratic Senate candidate Lucas Kuntz denounced Greitens and said he belongs in prison. And and so did uh, Josh Hawley, actually, yeah. and not that he... I don't know that he specifically said he belongs in prison, but he, he tweeted that he does not belong in the race. And Hawley apparently, so this puts Hawley in an interesting position because when Hawley was the state attorney general, he went after Greitens right. when Greitens was the governor and Greitens Which resigned. Caused his resignation. Right, yeah. causing his resignation. Um, so it's an interesting, think, like if he, if, if he were to stay in the race and he were to win, Josh Hawley would be in the position of being like co-senators right. with a guy he it, like attempted to prosecute. Yeah, which, which would be weird. Which suggests that Hawley uh, smells blood in the water because I don't think he would have gone this far if he didn't think he could shoot to kill and take him yeah. and take him out of this race. But Kim, what do you think? Like in in some ways, Lu- Lucas Kuntz, I don't know if he would admit this, was hoping for somebody like Greitens to be the nominee because the state is so deeply red that right. you need a freak show like that to make it to make it competitive. Right. Now, there are other freak shows in the primaries. So. Roy Moore type thing. Yeah, so, there, right. So that was this, this was going to be the, the Roy Moore potential. But there are plenty yeah. of others because they have to go so far to the right in the primary in order to, to, in order to prevail and get Trump's uh, you know, endorsement. But what, what, what's your read on, on how, this is, how this is shaking out? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously it's better to get the guy that you can just point out and be like, this guy is a criminal and a freak. And, you know, Greitens, what was it? So he, you know, because that obviously boosts your chances rather than getting somebody like a Glenn Youngkin, for example, that you have to run against. Mm-hmm. You're better off running against, um, you know, definitely a Roy Moore. But this guy, so Greitens, if we just remember, because I know a lot of people might be like, well, now what was this exactly? Because so now we have his ex-wife accusing him of abuse, but he was accused of um, some pretty, like, kind of crazy stuff. Was that like S&M tiles type stuff? Yes, and and, and uh, the woman on the business end of the S&M said that it was not entirely consensual. Uh, right. And there were fo- she was and her photos. Blackmail. Well, or he was trying to blackmail her to stay quiet about it. Yeah, and some thought. photos emerged. Like, and there's, right. there's an incredible interview that he did with Hugh Hewitt that people should just Google up and listen to where Hugh Hewitt, uh, who by no means kind of uh, a liberal media stooge, really grills him relentlessly about all of the different allegations because it's Hewitt's belief that if Greitens is the nominee, that Republicans would lose a Senate seat. And he tells Greitens that specifically. He's like, I don't want you to win the nomination because I think you would lose. And here's why. And he allows Greitens to respond to all of them. And it's it's a fascinating interview because it's like, you know, Hugh Hewitt does a terrific job of laying out the particulars. Well, and I can imagine that um, this strategy, the strategy, uh, and people should kind of go back and revisit that whole Eric Greitens, uh, you know, reread the whole thing because it's pretty it's pretty um, intense and bizarre and frightening. And then this guy is still running, you know, then he's no longer governor. Now he's running for Senate. So it's it's even more bizarre in that way. It's almost like maybe what Andrew Cuomo is planning on doing, right? Like a a comeback in some kind. Yeah, Greitens Um, didn't wait either. 
Right. But I do think that what's interesting about this sort of conversation about, well, who would Lucas Kuntz be more wanting to run against? I think we're seeing a lot of that. Like, for example, here in California for the recall, um, Gavin Newsom, of of course, wanted to run against Larry Elder. Way better to run against him than someone else. So what we see are candidates actually on the opposing side helping even stealthily uh, well, we know that Gavin Newsom did this, was helping fund not Larry Elder's campaign, but in his original governor um, gubernatorial race, he was campaigning. He was funding, helping fund the opponent he wanted to run against, not the opponent he yeah. didn't want to run against. And so I yeah, think Harry, we'll see more of that building up for the crazy guy. Harry Reid did that in Nevada. He he helped um, this Sharon crazy Angle? Sharon Angle right. uh, get the nomination and then ended up only winning by like a thousand votes. But he, he would have lost. That was 2010. And he won as a Democrat yeah. in Nevada. Alan Grayson uh, in Florida once uh, once ran ads uh, attacking a Republican in a primary as, you know, too extreme on the Second Amendment on on all this conservative radio. (laughs) And of course, it boosted that. Can you imagine the the egomania? And look, I you know, I don't know which of these accusations have been totally proven. He's in some kind of custody custody dispute with the ex-wife. You know, a, All, unpleasant right. things come out in these disputes. So, you know, be a little careful about just believing everything. But even but just being in that situation and having all this against you and thinking, yeah, I really got to run for Senate. I really <laughs> right. got to do it. Even though, you know, Republicans. Even though I resigned in disgrace. Even though I resigned in disgrace. It's Recently. really important for me. And, and this like this Cuomo, right, is, is mm-hmm. really wants to run again, wants to like these people who seek political office so often are just the worst people, are like so self-obsessed mm-hmm. that it, it has to be you. It has mm-hmm. to be you. Like, it no. doesn't have to be you. It doesn't, actually. And I don't think it's going to be him. I don't think it's going to be him. <laughs> Unfortunately for Lucas Cooper. Unfortunately for, for your buddy but, Lucas. But the, the, the yeah. risk of rolling the dice, uh, Hillary Clinton did that. Pied yep. Piper yep. jumped yeah. right into the nomination <laughs> and see how that worked out. So yeah. there's, a, there's a risk to that play. Uh, it's a, it's a yeah, people might, be might Senator actually Brightness. like the person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yikes. Anyway, tomorrow on Rising, Brianna Joy Gray joins us to discuss the latest news of the day. Then Max Alvarez and Pamela Denise Long will be here for our Rising panel. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And check out our podcast. Be sure to be signing up for that as well. Uh, you know, that Love way you that can graphic. hear us. Rate, Every it, time we rate it, review it. Right. Five stars. You can give it you can a take bad us review, but give it now. five stars. <laughs> Is that how that works? Yes. As long as you give it five stars, we're good. All right. All right. See you soon. Bye-bye.